This is Wolf in Tune, and you are listening to me, Richard Wolfie Wolf. And I'm here to tell you that I am delighted to have had the joy and privilege of making chin music with Krishna Das. Krishna Das is a Grammy-nominated, internationally revered musician who, until recently, has been traveling the world performing devotional music and chanting. For him and for many of his listeners, chanting is their main spiritual practice. And we're about to get a glimpse as to why that is. Krishna Das originally went to India with the renowned Ram Das in the late 60s, I think, where they both had their worlds turned upside down by their legendary guru, Maharaji. He shares incredible stories of his times with both of these spiritual leaders and explains the unique beauty which he has found in chanting meditation. We also talk about a lot of other stuff, but to find out what that is, you got to keep listening. So without further ado, I don't know what an ado, what happens if you have two ados? Without any more ados, please join me in listening to Krishna Das. Welcome, KD, to the Wolf and Tune podcast. It's fantastic that you agree to be here. Thank you. We're happy to be here. The first time I saw you was in a documentary about Baba Ramdas. He had just had a stroke. Uh-huh. And you were doing music, Kirtan, I learned at the time. And I actually was really enraptured by the music. I thought it was really great, which surprised me because I wasn't prepared to like it that much. <laughs> How did you get in touch with Baba? How did you guys connect? Well, that was one of the major events in my life, meeting him. It was a total change of direction for me. Uh, I had uh, He had come back from his first trip to India and was kind of hiding out at his uh, father's uh, place up in Vermont. Uh, he had a little estate. And he was up there through the winter. And uh, I heard about him from some friends of mine where I was living, upstate New York. They were uh, Jungian acid head mountain climbers. <laughs> and uh, they told me <laughs> they were going to visit Richard Alpert, who had returned from India. Did, did I want to go? And I said, nah, you know, I don't care about West, any Western teachers. I mean, yeah. So they left, and they were supposed to come back the next day. They didn't come back for like two or three days, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can still see the car coming back, cutting through the, the dirt road through the field and up to the driveway. And I had just come out of the goat shed. We had two goats. Alice Bailey and Madame Blavatsky were our two goats. Uh-huh. So I just, I came out of the goat shed and the guy gets out of the car and he turns around and looks at me. And I swear to you, I saw light shooting out of him. He was lit up like a sun in the sky. It was amazing. Wow. So I just said, write down the directions. I'm leaving now. I, I, I ran out, to, got my stuff together and I hit the road immediately. And I drove all night up to Vermont uh, through this freezing cold. When I walked into the room where Ramdas was sitting, uh, without eye contact, without a word being spoken, the minute I walked into that room, something hit me. And all of a sudden, I knew that whatever it was I was looking for, it was real, 
it was in the world and you could find it. Mm -hmm. It totally changed my life, that moment. Absolutely, totally changed my life. You know, before that, I had read the books, you know, the only books that were around in those days, you know, a few things, Autobiography of a Yogi, Gospel of Ramakrishna, Zen and Japanese culture, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But this was direct right into the bloodstream. It was amazing. Was this after he wrote Be Here Now? No, long before. Ah, so this is like yeah. he had just come back from India. Yeah, he came back in early, in in the spring of 68. And I met him in the winter of 68, 69, about six months after he got back. Oh, wow. And it went back that, that long. And you yeah. hadn't been to India yourself yet? No. No, no. Because this documentary was made decades later, right? After he had a stroke. Yeah, he had the stroke in uh, 97, I think. So people who may not know who Ramdas was, is he had, you mentioned Richard Alpert. He was with Timothy Leary at Harvard. They were experimenting with acid. You want to you wanna talk a little bit just to explain who Ramdas was? I mean, I knew of Leary and Alpert and all that, but... I didn't know him then, but yeah, he had, he and Leary developed this uh, scientific uh, study about the effects of LSD, and they were they were uh, doing a, a study with their students, and basically they were just getting stoned on acid and partying, and uh, <laughs> one of the students complained to the the people at Harvard, and they were actually thrown out of Harvard, but. You know, they were very serious scientists, really, at the time, trying to find out what this was and what this effect was. Because Ramdas, when he took the acid, he was liberated from that small prison of Richardness, you know, and he was freed into, you know, flowing into the universe. But nobody knew what it was and how it did what it did. So they were just experimenting and taking a lot of acid, of course. But And that's what brought Ramdas to India, actually, because he wanted to find somebody who could tell him what it was. He brought some acid with him, and he would give it to people, and some people liked it, some people didn't like it, but nobody had a clue about it. And then when he met uh, our guru, Nimkaroli Baba, his whole life changed. Deep heart opening, and really, his he came in contact with his deeper reality, and uh, it was life changing for him. But the next day, Maharaji looked at him and said, "You have some medicine." <laughs> and and Ramdas said he thought he meant like aspirin, so he took some aspirin out of his bag, and he said, "No, no, no, the yogi medicine, the yogi medicine. He he must mean acid." So Ramdas said, "Yes, I have." He said, "Give it to me." So he he put four tabs of pure Owsley acid on his palm of his hand and he held it out, and Maharaji took all four and threw them in his mouth, and they sat around all day and nothing happened. Absolutely no change. So that blew his mind. This guy was beyond. He took enough acid to put a horse on the moon. And nothing happened. Wow. So that was a big thing for him and for everybody, really. What a story. Yeah. There's a follow-up to that, actually. Uh, two years later, Ramdas, I had been in India for about six months, 
And then Ramdas came back and we were traveling around and we met Maharaji at one of his temples. Ramdas told this story about the acid many times to people when he came back from India. And, you know, some people said, ah, oh, come on, he hustled you. Nobody, he probably threw him over his shoulder. Nobody could take that much acid. And Ramdas didn't, didn't believe that. He really thinks Maharaji took it. But there was some slight little bit of doubt in there, right? Mm-hmm. So there we are sitting with Maharaji. I'm sitting right next to Ramdas in front of Maharaji. Maharaji says to him, when you were in India last time, did you give me medicine? Yes. Did I take it? I think so. Got any more? Yes. Give it to me. So, same thing. He puts his hand out with the acid on his palm, and Maharaji picked each individual pill up, opened his mouth, stuck his tongue out, and put it on his tongue and closed his mouth, right, you know, in slow motion, right in front of us, four times. So he, he knew Ramdas had doubts, and he, was, he wanted to show him what was happening. Wow. <laughs> so then a couple of minutes later, he used to wear this blanket, Maharaji, our guru. Uh-huh. So he takes the blanket, he puts it up over his head, and then he opens it up, and he makes this crazy face, like, ah! You know, and then he closes it down again, then opens it up, crazy face. Ramdas turned purple, and he thought, oh, my God. He didn't take it the first time, and he wanted to prove to me he could do it, so he took it, and now <laughs> I've killed my guru. <laughs> the minute he thought that, Maharaji stopped fooling around, and he looked at Ramdas and he said, Ramdas, for a yogi who knows God, no poison can affect him. And we wow. sat around all day. And then he said, yogis have known about this for thousands of years, used to grow up in the mountains and on and on. So, so you mentioned that the your guru Maharaji, right? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Neem Karoli mm-hmm. Baba is his full name. He taught you chanting, is that? No, no, he didn't. He, he didn't. He was very unusual. He didn't. He wasn't a teacher. He he was. Uh, he didn't teach formally like that. We heard the chanting. I heard the chanting in India, and it just lit me up so much that I, I said to myself, I this I gotta do this. And I just started learning all these chants and going anywhere anybody was chanting and I just knew intuitively that I could give myself to this. This is something I could really do fully. I just knew it was so important for me and to really chant like that. And it meant something to me. It really lit me up like nothing else. It kind of like the blues. When I first heard the blues as a teenager, Mississippi John Hurt, and Skip mm. James, and Reverend Gary Davis, this was like that to the nth degree for me. And can you articulate what it is about chanting that attracted you so strongly at the beginning? The people, when I heard it in India, I could see that the people were really giving it 100% of themselves. They were totally into it. And, you know, I, had, I was 23, and I was so neurotic, I couldn't get into anything. I, couldn't, I, was, I was always holding back. You know, I had this thing going on in me. And I just felt that, I just knew that this was my path. This was my way to, to get through that place in myself. 
to get past that place in myself. Just knew it inside. So can you explain how chanting leads to, shall we say, opening up doors? That mm -hmm. The way they talk about these kind of chants in India and in any real true spiritual tradition, they say that these chants, these what in India they call these chants the names of God, mm -hmm. the divine name. Mm -hmm. So they say that that it comes from within you. Mm. It, it was brought into this world by a being who who manifested it totally, but it comes from within, and it's the name of that place within you that is beyond your thoughts, deeper than emotions, etc., etc., etc. So. Through the repetition of these names, they say that that place within us is uncovered. You know, it's it's already here. We already have it. It's already within us, but we're not looking at it. We don't know where to look, how to see. So they say that this practice uncovers that place within us because the names come from that place. And more than that, they actually say that the sound of these names is actually uh, the divine presence itself. It's actually the form of the so-called deity. It's the, it's the vibrational form. Mm -hmm. The physical form of Rama is gone, of Krishna is gone, Kali, Durga. They're not physical beings anymore, if they ever were physical beings. But what they've left here in this world for us is that that vibrational sound or name and that it's not different than who you really are. Is that related to the concept of Shabda, which is that there is a vibration that's on the foundation of all that exists? Absolutely, sure. Absolutely. Shabda is sound, it means the sound, and, you know, Om is the the first sound, Aum. It's actually three sounds together. And the Ah is the impetus for all form, all creation, all vibration. It's, it's coming out of the so-called formless, beyond, beyond, mm -hmm. into creation. Mm -hmm. The Aum. And then Aum is, is the tying, tying it all up, kind of. So... Om is the original Shabda and the original sound vibration, which is all of creation is part of that. It's the sound that everything makes, you know, how everything mm -hmm. is vibration. Right. And so the unity and the, the, the totality of all the vibration is Om. If we could hear it all at once, that's what it would sound. It would be that huge, like the ocean crashing, waves constantly. So when you do the chanting, you're playing the harmonium, which we'll get into a little bit more, um, and you have melody. So if you weren't singing the names of God and you were just singing the melody um, or just playing the harmonium without saying the names of God, then it wouldn't be serving its purpose? Well, you know, that's an <laughs> you, you got me, right? <laughs> Because I love to sing, and I love to sing rock and roll, 
blues, everything. I just love singing. And we do at Soundcheck. You should hear Soundcheck. We do all this crazy stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And David Nickturn, who we were talking about before, he's always he keeps telling me, you know, we've got to do a Soundcheck recording. People want to hear this, but I always hesitate because I think, you know, there are people who do it better than me. That's what they do, and I I just do what I do because it's there's something inherently pure about the names they say they're like magic formulas that are only good for one thing mm-hmm. real love reality truth peace right they're not good for anything else they're not you can enjoy the singing and have a great time but the invocation of the names will open your heart clean your heart and and move you more deeply into yourself. So because I do that and I love doing that and I love singing with people, I think, you know, should I really do spend the time doing that even though it would be fun? Let me do what I do best and my it's my offering to the world and myself. So to answer your question, if if it wasn't these mantras that I'm singing or any mantra, and it was just the music, would that be enough? And I have to say that in my opinion, even though it might be inspiring and beautiful and opening and grounding and all those things, my belief is it wouldn't really be enough in the long run. And I'll tell you why. Because the repetition of these mantras actually destroys the delusion that we are separate beings. We are not separate beings, but we believe we are. And this practice of the repetition of the name gradually but inevitably liberates us from the planet of me, the prison of me, where all our stuff is is stored and hidden. Our shame, our grief, our fear, our anger, our selfishness. This practice can liberate us from that. And music by itself, no matter how beautiful it is, and no matter how powerful an experience it is, and it gives us and maybe even puts us into samadhi, into a trance of the mm-hmm. of beauty. It's not going to destroy that prison of me. There's still the me having that incredible experience. And if there's still the me, there will always be suffering. There's no escape. The me is limitation. It is suffering. It is it it's the pairs of opposites. Pain, shame, loss, gain, all that stuff. So my belief, and, you know, it's definitely a work in progress, mm-hmm. is that the repetition of the name is going to free me of this ridiculous idea that I am 
a separate being from everybody else. It makes total sense to me for a lot of reasons. I mean, one reason is if you look at every religion around the world, they all incorporate some kind of communal singing, one kind or another, right? You have hymns in churches, a gospel singing, and you have niglins in Jewish religion, you have the Buddhist chanting. Every religion has it. Islam, they sing the Quran as a it's yeah. It's a song. Yeah. But in only in what I'm hearing from you is the result of the singing a selflessness, a realization that there is no self. Or that if there is a self, it's just includes everything that exists mm-hmm. and doesn't exist. Yeah. This is the only experience that that I'm familiar with that has that conclusion to it. Yeah. Well, you know, there's many different kinds of people out there, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants a different version of happiness, a different version of reality. So all these different religions, they provide something. And I believe every single religion and every different spiritual path, if you practice it sincerely it can it will take you all the way to where you want to go but you know they call this time that we're living in the the, the kali yuga the dark ages right it feels like the the light is buried very deeply in this time and the deeper epiphanies of the different paths are hidden from people the spiritual path very quickly becomes overtaken by your your neurotic and your cultural subjectivity. And so these days, you know, maybe the real deeper teachings are not always available to us. Not that they don't exist within every tradition. I just read something the other day about a uh, Eastern Orthodox Christian saint from the 1800s or into the 1900s. And I got to tell you, I was blown away completely. It was just like reading about any Indian saint or any, you know, any any Buddhist uh, Mahasiddha. It was incredible. So it's there. It's just hidden. I think it, it comes under the title of, of skillful means. People need to be led to finding open-heartedness and compassion and kindness. Even though it's natural, we're living in such an unnatural time that it's very hard to start thinking like that and feeling that kind of openness. There's so much fear and anxiety. Those deeper teachings are more hidden these days, I think, in many of the the traditional spiritual uh, paths. Well, I I certainly agree with you that within every religion that I know of, there is the same truth that goes across all religions, but we're talking about the practice of a certain kind of musical practice, and with or without religion, I mean, it, it, there are times when people listen to music or make music there where they feel they are transcending themselves. They're going beyond themselves. They're connecting with other people, with the divine in some cases. Um, and they just rise up out of themselves while they're playing the music or while they're singing. 
But when the music stops, it's a different reality. They come down off that high. They come down off that transcendence back to life. And so it has the effect while the music is playing, but it doesn't change the way people live Yeah, sometimes. It can be a transcendent experience, but it doesn't, it doesn't cure you of, <laughs> of your uh, basic belief that you're separate from everybody else. Right. right. And, and in any kind of musical practice, we're talking about vibrations, right? And vibration is a disturbance. Beyond the vibration, where does the vibration come from? There's a source of the vibration. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, the only way to get to that source of the vibration, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, the sound is an echo of the soundless. Absolutely. So how do you get to the soundless and then beyond the sound and the soundless if the music is playing? You don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't. So how do you get there, though? But nobody does. <laughs> I don't know. When I listen to you speak, you know, I have a feeling that you understand about the soundless. Yeah. So but well, you... what I meant when I said you don't, I'm, I mean, I mean it in the sense that it it might happen, but when it happens, you're not there. Your you, your meanness, has been transcended. In other words, you we plant the seeds. A lot of times they talk about the names and mantra as a seed that's planted, and then it grows according to the right causes and conditions. And you use your personal will to plant the seed, but the seed grows on its own then. Right. It's not something you do with your personal will. Your personal will, Maharaj used to say um, that your personal will uh, can't create the more subtle states of mind. It happens when you're ready and when you've planted enough this, the right seeds through good actions and kindness and compassion and caring, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, what did the man say? It's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of the needle mm-hmm. than for some, a rich man or any ego to get to the kingdom of heaven. you got to leave it behind. you got to leave yourself behind sooner or later. But we don't do that with our personal will. You know, Ramana Maharshi said, asking the mind to kill the mind is like asking the thief to be the policeman. There'll be a lot of investigation, but no (laughs) arrest will ever be made. (laughs) Yeah, well, the seed grows in silence. Yeah. Yeah. You know what St. John of the Cross wrote? Did you ever hear this? In the beginning... The father uttered one word. That word is his son. And he utters him forever in everlasting silence. And it is in silence that the heart must hear. Absolutely. So beautiful, huh? It is beautiful. So 
as part of your practice, when you're finished chanting, is there sitting in silence at all? Yeah, some. It happens by itself, you know. I, I don't do it. What I do is I sing, I chant, and I do my best to give it my, you know, 100% of my usual 3%. And uh, that's that's the practice. I'm not looking for silence. I'm not looking for anything. I'm I'm paying attention. I'm coming back when I'm distracted, or dreaming, or remembering, or forgetting. You know, I keep mm -hmm. coming back to the chant, mm -hmm. again and again. Keep dedicating myself to back with sincerity and open heartedness and as as much intensity as I can without getting uh, crazy uptight, intense. That's the practice. The silence is the echo of that, you know? Mm -hmm. And it happens by itself. Like, I'll be chanting for three hours, and then I stop, and the room is just, whew, everybody is just right in it. It just is so powerful, mm -hmm. you know? So powerful. It's mm -hmm. such grace, really. Mm-hmm. Such beauty. How it happens, I don't have a clue. All I do is I do the practice. I do the practice. I keep letting go of the thought and invoking the name. So it's a little bit different than uh, shamatha practice, you know, uh, concentration practice in Buddhist meditation. That's that's usually without mantra and just with the breath or something like right. that. Right. So it's a little bit, it has this has a, a different quality to it because of the, it is the repetition of the names of real love, you know. So it, they say there's a magnetism to those names that allow you to, to really enter more deeply into them. Do you incorporate mindfulness at all? Have you practiced mindfulness at all? I've done a lot of mindfulness practice, sure, over the years. When we were in Bodh Gaya with Ramdas, uh, that's where we were when he arrived for his second trip and uh, to India. We did six 10-day courses in a row, one with Mr. Manindra, who was uh, Joseph Goldstein's teacher, and then with Mr. Goenka, five 10-day course, five courses in a row of Vipassana, mindfulness, Vedana Vipassana. So I've done a lot of that over the years, but you know, the chanting, the Indian way, the guru devotion and the path of, of surrender is really my, my home base. It's where I'm, it's where I'm home. You know, that's the most, and, and that incorporates everything as far as I can tell in terms of how I, you know, my own experience. So your practice is, and by the way, one thing that I really respect about you when I listen to your podcast and your talks is you don't sugarcoat the fact that people need to practice. <laughs> you, you, you know, and I get criticized for something similar. It's, uh, uh -huh. yeah. Um, you, you don't sugarcoat it. You make it quite clear that there's no substitute and there's no shortcut. You just got to commit yourself, dedicate yourself to practicing. On a more or less on a regular basis, whatever the practice might be. Yeah. You know, um, the 16th Karmapa said, the only thing you can take with you when you die 
is your state of mind. So that's what we have. That's what we need to work with and work on. That's what we bring to our everyday. That's what we share with people ultimately is how we feel about everything, what, how we see the world, what our state of mind is. If, if, we're, not, if we're totally, then what are we going to do? <laughs> you can't pretend and get away with it because sooner or later, it hits the fan and you're gone. And what you're going to take with you is your state of mind. So you might as well get real now while you, can't, while you seem to have a choice. So in meditation practices now, mindfulness and, and other kinds of meditation, now with the uh, invention of apps and the adaptation in the Western world by, uh, of a lot of the meditation practices, they say um, practice five minutes a day. Or I, I even heard the Dalai Lama on a podcast. He said, take 10 seconds, take 30 <laughs> seconds. So I'm yeah, wondering yeah. what your opinion is. Can you chant for like 30 seconds and then it'll do the trick? Well, first of all, what His Holiness was talking about was Dzogchen, Mahamudra practice. That's a specific type of meditation. Right. And it doesn't involve concentrating and will and all that it involves resting in the nature of mind which is very hard to do for a long period of time so you practice in little spurts but but no no chanting for 30 seconds that's chanting for 30 that's 30 seconds that i won't be robbing a bank or beating my head against a wall so it's not bad you know <laughs> but is it going to get me uh is it going to remove my my greed and selfishness and nastiness. Uh, I don't know. Maybe if it leads to 35 seconds, <laughs> you know, we might get somewhere someday. I think just getting people to just step out of the river of inertia that's taking them right down to the waterfall of death, getting them to step out of that for any long, any period of time is a really good thing. Mm-hmm. And not everybody, including me, is ready to sit down and meditate all day. If I was ready, that's what I'd be doing. But I'm ready to make some little bit of effort in terms of what I do during the course of a day. And so anything that encouraged people to help them at least experience how gone we are all the time, that's a really useful thing. Mm -hmm. I've never really tried any of those apps, but I think... Even though, like I just said, it's useful, I think a lot of those apps, they miss the point in some way. You know, it's not, it's not just enough to have some little bit of awareness of, of what you're thinking, what you're doing, you know. One really does need to cultivate, you know, what they call the four immeasurables in Buddhism, right? You know, kindness, compassion equanimity and, and real joy. Uh, without cultivating loving kindness and compassion, your practice can be very empty of feeling, which is not really a good thing. It's a big misunderstanding about, of people these days. You, you don't get to really, you don't get to the nitty gritty of your stuff, you know? You think, oh, I'm aware of it i'm mindful of it that's good but you don't you don't get to really 
work with it and, and release all those, the, untie all those knots in our hearts. It's not so easy just to do that without extending yourself to other people in a good way and learning to live in the world as a good human being. So speaking of that, the, the realization that we are all interconnected and inseparable from each other, we're all manifestations of the divine. Can a person be free as long as there are people that are not free? Everybody's free within. Everybody has Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. Everybody. Mm -hmm. Trees, animals, everything and everything created has Buddha nature, has, has that essence. Cars and trucks too. Uh, not so sure about that. I had a truck named Frank once. <laughs> so everybody has that Buddha nature, but not everybody's looking because of the karmic situation that people bring into the world and, and the group karmic situation of the world at this time. Listen, there's a story about His Holiness, Dalai Lama. Somebody said, are you happy? And he said, well... I guess you could say I've had a hard life. I was taken from my parents, you know, raised in a monastery two years old. And then I had to take the reins of my country as a teenager, as the Chinese were invading. And then I had to escape over the mountains. Now I live as a refugee. And I had to watch as the Chinese murdered millions of my people. The Chinese have taken everything from me. Am I going to let them take my happiness? Lovely. What they have, what the understanding is, there's ultimate reality mm -hmm. and relative reality. They have different rules, you know. In ultimate reality, everyone is free. No one was ever bound. Nothing ever happened. Relative reality, you step, you know, you try to cross the street. When the light is red, you get killed. Ultimate reality, there's no birth, no death. So one has to live appropriately in the world one sees most of us live in relative reality and there's much suffering in relative reality and it can't be up leveled you can't say oh well everybody's free it's not real suffering no no it is real suffering in relative reality because that's where our heads really are so what we need to do is do the best we can to relieve that suffering for ourselves and others. And theoretically, and I say theoretically because we're all, I'm working on it, you can be free, you can be happy, even when you're suffering. Forget about others' suffering. So, but just because you're happy or you've, you've found some peace, you recognize that others are suffering and you, because the quality of that peace is that we all connected, then naturally you want to extend that peace to all beings. So, you know, it, that's kind of the way it works. You, you can't hold on to that peace for yourself, then it's not real peace. So you mentioned that we're living in a time connected with what you just said about other people not at peace and a lot of people suffering right now. Uh, we live in a time, Kali Yuga, which is a dark time where the light is being hidden. Yeah. 
And I don't think it's uh, stretching credulity at all to think that what you would say is that we need to do whatever we can to alleviate the suffering of others. That's part of yeah. it's part of the practice, right? Absolutely. Because some people say, well, the way to bring freedom to the world is I need to work on myself. And once I am uh, not racist, not bigoted, uh, totally compassionate to other people, then that vibe will spread. But first I need to work on myself. Yeah, uh, that's confusion talking. And I think if you look at a person who says that, then you find some fear in that person. And fear of others, fear and, and belief that that person, he feels he's a separate being and wants to find his bliss first. And then, oh yeah, then I'll share it with other people. I don't really think it works like that. For us, if we were meant to be in a cave, we'd be there already. So for those of us who don't have the karmic ripeness to be doing something like that in a way that is just simply not trying to avoid suffering, but seriously being pulled within, it's a mistake to think that way. And I don't think ultimately it's really useful for anybody to think that way. Who is that guy, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You mean uh, Rabbi Hillel? <laughs> You're the <laughs> second guy who said that to me this week. I can't believe that. <laughs> it's a famous story. Uh, yeah, but I, yeah, I'm talking about the G, the other rabbi, Jesus. Well, but it's in Leviticus 19:18. Oh, uh, I didn't know. Th I didn't know that until earlier this week. But that's yeah. great. <laughs> Not to interrupt you, but since you asked. The, the sentence is, you shouldn't bear a grudge, you shouldn't take vengeance, love thy brother as yourself. Mm -hmm. People forget about the first parts of it, not to bear a grudge, not to take vengeance. Yeah. How we have somebody that has the support of religious people, I've got a little political here, but we have moral leadership that has the support of some religious people that does not exemplify the the statement of do not bear a grudge, do not take revenge, mm. love thy neighbor as thyself. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry for interrupting. I'm sorry. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it's a very dark time. Our leaders are lost and we're 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 struggling to find a way to live in this world in a good way. And our leaders are not helping us. For instance, let me just talk about myself. Some people can do are qualified for certain things, you know. Everybody's qualified for different things. The only thing I can, I, there's two things I'm qualified in this life: chanting and pumping gas. <laughs> so I think chanting is better. So that's my way of giving to the world and trying to help people and myself process everything that happens to us within a day including the stuff we see on television and the news and what's going on with the riots right now and the, the pandemic and everything. My, my, I, see, I mean, my job as it's evolved, so to speak, is to share my practice with people and 
try to empower them to be able to do the right thing with their lives in their own time. Uh, I'm not a politician. I'm not a social activist out that in that way, but I feel that I'm providing for myself and others a very important piece of the puzzle. Because no matter what you do, the, your motivation has to be compassion if you really want to get something done. It can't be anger, can't be selfishness, all those things. Compassion is, is the best motive to have for any action, including uh, demonstrating and voting and running for office and all that. I mean, if compassion is your motivation, you'll do the more to help the world than anything. Lovely. So getting back to the music, you play a harmonium, and mm -hmm. that's, a, that's an instrument that was invented in India? I guess you encountered no, it I first. No, I think it was actually French or English. I think it was actually France, and then the English brought it to India in the 1800s. Huh. And you know, as far as Indian music goes, it's not... They use it, but you, there's no microtones in a harmonium. You know, it's tuned like regular half tones. So it's not really ideal for Indian music, but they found a way to, to kind of mush the tones together when they play. But still, it's not, it, it's not real uh, traditional Indian instrument. So did you play keyboards before you played the harmonium? You know, I took some piano lessons when I was 10 years old. And so I've got the perfect instrument, a one-hand keyboard. <laughs> I can't play anything with my left hand, but my right hand, you know, I'm good in two keys only. But with your left hand, you got to move the bellows, right? Don't you? Yeah, you have to pump the bellows. That's you, what I can do. You can pump gas and pump bellows. you got three things you can do. Um, you know, I just recognized <laughs> pumping is the one thing I can do in this world. <laughs> well, hey, listen, it's harder than it looks. Because you're familiar with Allen Ginsberg, I'm assuming, the poet. Oh, of course, yeah. The, the great sure. poet. So for those who may not know, Allen Ginsberg is considered the poet laureate of the Beat Generation, and he was very influential on songwriters from Bob Dylan to The Clash. So I had the privilege of spending a little time with him in his apartment, and it just it was the two of us at that point in, in a room. Uh, he was living with Peter Olofsky, his lover there. And yeah. uh, he, at the time, he had a female punk group. I think they were called Flaming Youth. They were living in the living room. Anyway, uh -huh. he, he had been told that, that I was a songwriter that he should listen to. So after I played him music, he said, well, let me play you something. He took out a harmonium. And, and I, I think what he did was he was singing. Uh, he said somebody from India had given him this instrument. And Wasn't it a Shruti box, just a drone? Yeah, it was a box, but it a had drone. a keyboard. It's called, oh, it had a keyboard. Yes, okay. it had a keyboard. Oh, Absolutely. Wow. That's essential to the story because okay. he said to me, do you play piano? Same question I asked you. And I said, yes, which is the truth. I grew up playing the piano. He says, okay, can you give me lessons in harmonium? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying, I, I'm not good enough to teach anybody. Uh, uh, the har uh -huh. harmonium. I, I've never played it. I was totally, I didn't want to say yes and then disappoint the man because it looked to me like even though I knew a little bit about playing piano, that the bellows part, the pumping part uh, was yeah, the yeah. thing that that was daunting. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. How did you learn the pumping part? You taught yourself or somebody taught you? Yeah, I, Richard, is, it's really very simple. <laughs> you just pump and you then you play the keys and your hand does it automatically after a while. You don't really have to think about it. Really. I tell you what, when we're together, I'll, I'll bring my <laughs> harmonium. I'll give you a harmonium lesson. <laughs> Staying on this vibe of lightheartedness, you talked about Leela. Um, I just heard you in, in one of your podcasts met, answer a question with the concept of Leela, um, which is something that I think is part of one of the things that you embody that's very, very inspiring. Um, and something I relate to. Can you talk a little bit about what Leela means and what it means to you? Leela, the word means play or drama mm -hmm. in a sense. And what it's usually used uh, to describe the, the lives and actions of what they call the avatars of God, the incarnations of God. And they believe that when the world gets really bad, God actually takes a form, a human form, and to relieve the world of, of the negativity. And so they talk about Ram Lila, Krishna Lila, and or the, or the also in the, the Divine Mother, the goddess Lila's of the goddess. Um, and the concept is that this being who is an avatar, an incarnation of the Supreme, has no personal agenda. There's no desire in that. There's no separate self. You know, they, they, that being is fully, you could say fully enlightened, but it's even beyond that. And so everything that person does, no matter what it looks like, from our view, mm -hmm. is actually not not desire motivated, which you know when they talk about Krishna Leela dancing with you know what sixteen thousand gopis at the same time and making love to each one of them in the way that they wanted to be made love to, and yet at the middle he's dancing with his main uh, the main devotee Radha, you know, and he's manifested all these forms. There's no personal desire there. We can't help but see it as lust, so to speak, if, if from a normal human point of view. But from if you were inside of Krishna, there's no personal, there's no one in there to have lust. There's just this expression of the divine energy and, and playfulness in a way in the world. So... Uh, the idea of Leela means is really desireless action, which is which is very difficult to understand for us because everything we do has some kind of uh, motive. And the only motive that, that a free being has is the relieving of suffering for, for everyone. And there is no personal suffering anymore for that being. So I'm not sure if that's what you wanted to hear, but that's <laughs> a little bit about Leela. No, the dancing part, that's the part I like. 
and, I, <laughs> and you know, you go to museums and you see the portrayals of Krishna dancing, and he's smiling. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? He's smiling and dancing, mm -hmm. and you know, he's dancing with, with other people, and they're having yeah. a great time. And uh, there's joy in that, that and, and the idea that uh, creation is a dance. And you, met, you talk about the Dalai Lama talking about happiness. Why should I let them take my happiness? Yeah. They were asking him um, about the epidemic, the pandemic, and how come he's still giggling all the time and you know, he's, he's, he seems to be so happy and joyful. And he says, well, if we don't continue to cultivate joy and laughter, then the suffering will win. Yeah. Yeah. But, and the other thing to recognize is that he's not somebody that avoids suffering. Right. He's right into it. He works with people. He's with people all the time who are suffering. Right. He's, he, he lives to help people who are suffering. So he's not somebody who's laughing all by himself at home while everybody else is, you know, dying. He's he's on the front lines of of dealing with the root causes of suffering for everyone. There's another story about his holiness. Uh, there was a meeting of like Christian fathers and priests and everything, and they asked him what his concept of sin was. So he just looked at me and said, "It's kind of a Christian thing, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> they don't have that idea of original sin that we're all bad at heart you know mm -hmm. in, in the eastern religions none of them speaking about sin you performed at the grammys right <laughs> yes i did what first of all i gotta ask you i got a lot of questions about this number one did you have stage fright? I mean, this is not a, an everyday occurrence for anybody. No, not no. I wasn't nervous. Um, even if I was nervous, the minute I sit down and start squeezing that little harmonium, everything it just becomes irrelevant what I feel that way. But I will tell you, when I went out on that stage, where we were actually wheeled out on the stage on this uh, platform and looked out, and I saw Chick Corea, Pat Metheny, Herbie Hancock. I just said, am I really going to squeeze this thing in front of these people? <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how did you get the gig to play at the Grammys? Um, the, uh, the guy who organized the afternoon session, which was the, the, you know, the, the music that was non-pop music, his wife was a yoga teacher, is a yoga teacher, and uh, she, I... I, I was nominated for the, you know, just regular nomination for the Grammy. But Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so she heard I was coming, so she asked me to sing one of my tunes. So he did. So how did the nomination come around? Uh, I don't know, you know. <laughs> it happened. It happened once. It never happened again. So I'm, a, I'm a, an official Grammy loser. You're your official Grammy-nominated musician. Yeah. Nominated as an artist, a composer, what? Artist in the, in the New Age category. Should have been Old Age, but the New Age was what it was. Okay, so I think we covered a lot of, you know, <laughs> the Grammys is a good way to uh, a, a finish. It's a good apex, I think. And, you know, 
you'll never guess where it was. It made the biggest impact in the around the world. Uh, in, in India, terms of India, yeah. Huh. They could not believe that America a Grammy Award would would honor chanting. You know, it blew their minds. So it was. It made me very popular in India. Wow! Did you go back to India since you won the Grammy? Oh yeah! I mean, I, since you I, were nominated, I've been. I sang there. Yeah, I, I sing there whenever I go. So, but you know, I said it was a way to stop. I got one more question at least, which is you yeah. mentioned Herbie Hancock. Hmm. So Herbie is well known as Tina Turner is, and Wayne Shorter, and other musicians for chanting in the Buddhist chant. Uh, what is it? Ringe Kyo. There you go. What's the difference between what they do and what you do? Well, I, I'm not really sure exactly. Uh, I think that's called Pure Land Buddhism. Uh -huh. And I think they believe that uh, through that chanting, when they die, they go to a pure Buddha field, pure land, like a heaven world. I'm, I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't really know much about it. Nichiren Shosu, it's called. Right, and also there's uh, it's, it's reciting the names of a Buddha, Am Amitabha. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. That's also uh, a kind of a chant. Oh, sure. Yeah, there's many chants in Buddhism. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Tibetans chant all the time, all these powerful mantras. Uh, and in, in Theravadan Buddhism, there's many chants in Pali. Yeah, no, there's a lot of chanting in Buddhism. Did we uh, cover everything we need to cover, you think? <laughs> well, I th isn't this the first of a series of 10? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have... Uh, we, yeah, we have nine more to go. Anytime. We have nine more to go. We got plenty of time, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I want to really thank you very much again. You will come back again, I hope. I hope so. I hope, uh, I'll hope to invite me and I'll come. We'll talk again. Okay, take good care. Take care. Well, all right. I love speaking with Krishna Das. He's the real deal. He's fast on his feet, as I tell him. And he's one of the very few musicians who gets that music is exquisitely beautiful. It's invaluable. And it's powerful in a way, spiritually, physically, emotionally, that no other art form is. And yet, music alone is not enough. He's a musician that appreciates silence as much as sound. All right, so uh, this is the outro where I ask people to please do us a favor. See, I could have done this at the beginning and bored you to tears, but I'm not, I, I don't do that. So here I ask, uh, as I'm told to ask, for ratings, for reviews, for a good word. Put in a good word for us however you can. Subscribe, whatever you, you know, podcast listeners, however you express yourselves. If you like something, appreciate it. Spread the word. You know what I mean. And I'm going to thank a couple of people here. Of course, I'm going to thank Krishna Das. And I'm going to thank Lonnie Rinaldo for her incalculable contribution, her, her great work here. And, of course, the Hannah Bowers, my co-producer. Thank you very much, and I hope you all stay in a higher octave. And let's, you and I, stay in tune.